Rice, have your name known to some of you. He is an Indian evangelist uh, who specializes in the work of apologetics, uh, commending the, the Christian faith uh, to its detractors, uh, seeking to respond to people's objections. And uh, he's been greatly used of God. He's a, a large team of co-workers. Uh, one of them, a number of years back, a man called Michael Ramsden, had been invited to, by some Muslim teachers uh, to come into a closed country and have a debate and dialogue with them about Christianity. Uh, Ramsden and his team prayed that they would have an opportunity to share the gospel, although they knew that uh, that would be perhaps a dangerous activity. And they went uh, into the country and they talked about whatever subject the Muslim imam had asked them to speak about. And at the end of uh, Michael Ramsden's lecture, one of the young men who was a Muslim teacher uh, raised his hand and asked, could you explain to me please why uh, you Christians think that Jesus needed to die? That was a huge answer to prayer because in the, the answering of this question there was the opportunity uh, to share the, the heart of the gospel uh, with these Muslim teachers uh, and Ramsden was just about to answer his friend grabbed him by the arm and said to him, Michael answer very carefully, it's one thing to die for the gospel, it's another thing to die for it, for sharing it poorly <laughs> So think about what you're saying. Uh, He got to answer the question that the Muslim had asked, and it was a key question, uh, a key question uh, in all situations, but perhaps especially for Muslims. They, of course, uh, honour, by their way of it, Jesus as a prophet, but they deny that Jesus died. They claim that his death was only apparent. Uh, uh, It wasn't uh, real on the cross. And they don't understand why Christians... Uh, think that Jesus had to die. Well, the author to the uh, Hebrews, of the letter to the Hebrews, is going to explain to us uh, why it is that Jesus had to die. His blood, the blood of the cross, uh, is central uh, in this exposition about the superiority of Jesus as a priest. Uh, We've been looking at this for a while now and and he will continue in the next chapter to continue uh, to speak about Jesus uh, superior priesthood and what that means for us in persevering as Christians and in this comparison between Jesus the high priest and Aaron and his descendants are representing the old priesthood the old tabernacle the old covenant it is the blood of Jesus that is central in making his priesthood, the second priesthood, so much greater and more effective than the rest. Uh, So we're going to look at the old ministry at the old tabernacle, then at Christ's ministry uh, at the new tabernacle not made by hands, and thirdly, why it is that the blood of Christ uh, is necessary. Now, these are huge subjects. Each uh, one could take uh, several expositions on its own, and we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Notice that in the chapter itself, uh, the writer uh, doesn't want to get bogged down in detail. There's obviously a lot that could be said 
uh, in regard to the various items in the tabernacle. They are full of messianic significance. But in verse 5 he says, we can't discuss these things in detail right now. He's wanting to press on. Uh, He has an important theme. And the important theme is this, that as sinful people, uh, we need to find the right and effectual priest who will deal with our great need, which is sin. I have a a minister friend. uh, We once shared uh, lodgings in Thurso in Caithness, and he worked at the time in the Dunray nuclear reactor. It's remarkable that these nuclear reactors, they're there for uh, a relatively short period, and they take ages to decommission. I think they're still decommissioning the the reactor at Dunray. But uh, in the complex that is Dunray, there are corridors leading to doors with great signs on them saying, keep out, danger, radiation, skull and crossbones, signs everywhere. This is a dangerous place. There are places where you uh, dare not go uh, because you would be uh, contaminated. And the complicated procedure, the danger warnings are there uh, for two reasons. And the first is the nature of that radioactive core. And the second is the nature of the human body. Uh, It's the nature of uranium to give out radiation. That's what it does. That's the nature of the human body to have cells that are susceptible to that radiation, which would be destroyed by those rays. And I often think that that's a a picture of what it is for us uh, to come unprotected into the presence of God. It is God's nature to be holy and therefore to be opposed to sin. And sadly, it is our nature to be sinful creatures and to draw on ourselves the righteous wrath of God. And that situation is dramatized in the tabernacle. God gave Moses very specific instructions about how the tabernacle was to be constructed because it was all teaching a lesson. And the writer begins with an overview of the the layout of the tabernacle and the the articles of furniture that were present in each part. The first thing that uh, is important is that uh, the tabernacle at which Aaron and his sons presided was an earthly tabernacle. There is a heavenly original and the one that Moses was uh, given design for was a copy. It was a derivative. It wasn't, in a sense, the real thing. And this tabernacle had a courtyard separated from the camp by skins attached to, the, to frames of poles. And within this, there was a courtyard, and within the courtyard, a tent uh, with an outer chamber and an inner chamber. The outer chamber, as we were saying earlier, was the holy place, and the inner chamber was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. A box inlaid with gold with a lid in which there was the, the, the cherubim, uh, these uh, angelic beings uh, with their wings stretched out and with their heads uh, 
facing forward and downward in worship uh, because this was a throne. Who was it who sat in this throne? God was pictured as being enthroned between the cherubim. And within the box, uh, there were the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And Aaron's rod that budded, uh, and that was throwing back to the time when uh, Aaron's role as a leader was challenged. And God caused his staff uh, to, to bud, and it, uh, it sent up uh, blossom and, and, um, and almonds. And it was a reminder that only a priest whom God had appointed could come into his service. Now, as God is envisaged being enthroned uh, between the cherubim over the ark, uh, beneath him, if you like, is the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone, which are a reminder that man made in his image uh, is a lawbreaker. Man has broken the commandments. And when the high priest came into the Holy of Holies, he, of necessity, had slain a bull for his own sin and then had brought uh, the blood of another sacrifice into the Holy of Holies to lay it, to daub it on the cover the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is now the mercy seat. The blood covers over the reminder of our sin. God looks down now not in a reminder of the broken law, but upon blood that has been shed. And so one of the, one of the verbs that's used for forgiveness is to expiate our sin. There's a good technical word. Let's make that our one technical word for this evening. We have our sin expiated covered over by the blood of Jesus that was what the picture of the blood going on the ark of the covenant was symbolizing Jesus blood covers our sin from God's view now again there's huge amount of uh, information for meditating in uh, the, the tabernacle itself, but the, the writer wants to rush on. We cannot discuss these things in detail right now. The point was, the tabernacle was a teaching aid, and it was to show the people that their sin kept them from God's presence. Now, the fact that it was, such a, it was a minority of one who could come into the Holy of Holies had to say something, as did the, the repetition of sacrifices. You know, whatever else all the slaughtering of bulls and lambs and goats was doing, it couldn't be doing away with sin because it had to be repeated all the time. And the, the fact that uh, whilst priests could come into the holy place, only the high priest could come into the holy of holies and the people by and large could only come into the courtyard, that was reminding the people that they certainly had not arrived at the time when Jeremiah said that everyone would have a face-to-face -face knowledge of God. Uh, we've just seen that, uh, these verses quoted in the last chapter. Jeremiah said, the Lord said to Jeremiah, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. 
So the, the, the drama of being in the tabernacle and seeing sacrifices uh, is all intended to show the ordinary worshipper, the ordinary Jewish worshipper, that something better had to come. And hence the promise of a new covenant. There would be a new administration. There would be a new lamb. Uh, and this is the point here. The reason why the old administration was imperfect and looked towards a perfect one lay in the blood of the sacrifice that would be offered. It was an incomplete ministry, that of Aaron, because, the writer says, it could not cleanse the conscience. It couldn't cleanse the conscience. Now that's the chief point of comparison between the old ministry and the new. This matter of having a conscience cleansed. Ineffective in the old, effective in the new. So it's probably good to think about what we understand as conscience. There's different people have different ideas as to what a conscience is. Some people think of it being an infallible moral guide. You know, if you follow your conscience, then you will always do what is right. Trouble is that some people, some people follow their conscience in the way that uh, people follow a wheelbarrow. You know, their conscience takes it where they want it to go. And in fact, our conscience is only reliable uh, insofar as it has been calibrated by a, a true moral standard. And therefore, our conscience is only our, our guide and our, our safety if we have been informed by God's word. That is our moral standard for what is right and what is wrong. And when we have a moral standard, our conscience, this in, inner voice, if you like, tells us whether we are going against it or whether we're living in conformity with it. Now, you can have a conscience that's warped or calloused, and so you, you might find that you, you, you're, you're living according to your conscience, your light, but your light is darkness. It's not calibrated by the truth. Conscience, then, can be mistaken, not a safe guide in itself. It accuses us whenever we violate the moral standard that we have. But all depends on whether the moral standard that I have is the right moral standard. God's word is the moral standard and our conscience will confirm whether we're following that or not. Cleansed conscience. Said that many of the cases that fill up uh, hospital beds uh, in with people who, who are, are racked with emotional, mental health issues, a lot of the, the underlying issues are to do with matters of conscience. Millions of people racked by uneasy consciences. If you've ever read Philip uh, Yancey's book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, it's uh, full of uh, illustrative material, and he cites uh, one... Uh, interesting phenomena in, in California, of course, uh, where they had the, the sound off, or the, sorry, the apology sound off line. And this was a telephone service where people could phone in and with an anonymity they could express their regret 
for things that they had done, things that were getting on their conscience. People who no longer believed in priests of any kind uh, were now entrusting their sins to an answering machine. 200 anonymous callers each day, leaving 60-second messages. Adultery, he wrote, was the most common confession. Some callers confessing to criminal acts, rape, child abuse, even murder. Recovering alcohol leaves the message, I would like to apologise to all the people I hurt in my 18 years as an addict. A young woman sobbing into the phone says, sorry, she's just caused a car accident in which five people died. I wish I could bring them back. Now, for the people who use the apology sound offline, that is giving temporary relief. It's letting them get something off their chest. It gives the illusion of having made a confession of sorts. But it will not cleanse the conscience. And neither could the sacrifices in the tabernacle under the old ministry of the old priesthood cleanse the conscience. Nor were they meant to. They were meant to be pointing forward to a sacrifice that would cleanse the conscience. And there are great examples of of people uh, who recognised that the Old Testament structures were pointing forward and they looked forward in faith and looking forward they were saved. Men like David who in his great psalm of confession recognises that it's not the blood of bulls and goats that will save him. You do not delight in sacrifice that I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So there's the first portrayal of the old ministry in the tabernacle. And it's continually being repeated and it's ineffectual for cleansing the conscience and now the writer takes us to Christ's ministry at a heavenly tabernacle he has gone into heaven itself and has done that by virtue of his own blood he has made a decisive entrance into the presence of God remember the tabernacle was figuring Heaven, it was figurative of the presence of God, but it was a copy of that. It was a a representation. But Jesus has gone to the real thing. He has gone into God's presence. And by faith, the writer tells us, we are brought with him into God's presence. So the promise of having access to God and face-to-face knowledge with God is fulfilled in Jesus because he is with the Father. So the good things, uh, verse 11 tells us, are already here. They're no longer future as they were in the Old Testament. They have come with Jesus. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. By his death, Jesus has achieved two objective things. Eternal redemption by his blood 
and the clearing of our debts. He has cleared away the debt of sin and brought us freedom. So we are redeemed by the payment of a price and as a result we have freedom. Now these are two objective things. They're they're two factual things. Jesus' blood has achieved something. The blood of a goat or a bull is of insufficient value to achieve our freedom from sin and its consequences. But Jesus' blood is effective because of who Jesus is. He has therefore cleansed our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Verse 14. Uh, We're talking about acts of death uh, just a, a little earlier. Acts of death are a variety of things that people do uh, for anyone other than God. Things which actually can benefit others, but they are not done from uh, a heart which has been changed by the Spirit of God. Someone who is born again can never please God. You realize that? Despite the fact that non-Christian people do remarkable good things, can be involved with charitable work, they cannot please God so long as their hearts are not changed, their works are prompted from all kinds of of motivation uh, to think well of themselves or have others think well of themselves. Their works are dead works. They are turned in on themselves. They cannot please God. And such works result in death in our lives. There's a harvest of bitterness, of envy, of lack of peace. This is replicated in a whole lot of different areas. Sometimes you see it uh, in in people who uh, take up a cause, you know, secular people who are active uh, in uh, a a cause, in a a single cause movement. Uh, Maybe Feminism, or the environment, multiculturalism, and they have a legalistic code as to what is good and what is bad. And they have those who are in, and there are those who are out, and they have a venom for those uh, who fail to, to live up to their own man made standards. These are dead works which lead to bitterness. But what's in view especially is dead religious works, and it's uh, the, the getting involved in. A ritualistic effort without a living relationship with God. Of course, this was the snare of Jews who had all of the privilege of having the right apparatus, tabernacle, uh, covenant promises, the Bible, and they could be involved in tithing and, and, and coming along to the main festivals that God had set down and hoping that by performing again all of these things, they would be acceptable to God. What happens uh, instead of finding acceptance with God is uh, a cycle of failure. So that I try to do the things that I reckon God wants good people to do. I try for a while, I fail to keep them up, end up feeling bad about myself because I've failed. I feel guilty. I feel depressed. And 
It is only a conscience informed by the word of God that leads a person instead to fall at the feet of Jesus to acknowledge that in all eternity they can never do enough uh, to find acceptance with God and then receive with open hands the forgiveness that Jesus has won by his death on the cross of Calvary. And that is how, friends, our conscience is cleansed from dead works. We learn to die to dead works and we learn to receive the righteousness of Christ. We learn to have his blood cleanse us from all of the, the, the wrong-headed lifestyle that, that we've lived up till then. We're freed from paralyzing gift. We now have a new motivation for serving. But the question thirdly is, the question which is behind it here, why does this require the blood of Christ? Well, that's what the writer is trying to address in verses 16 to 23, the necessity of the death of Christ. And there are two reasons that he gives. First of all, Jesus' death was necessary in order to bring in, to activate the new covenant. A death had to take place. Now, in verse 16 and the verses that follow, there, there's a movement between a will and covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of someone who made it. Now, the word behind will is the same as the word that's translated covenant. So you could actually use covenant all the way through here. But um, most of the translations... Uh, differentiate at this point and talk about a will as in a last will and a testament. And obviously, someone has to die for anyone to benefit from the will. So there has to be a death before the benefits of that will can be shared out. Christ had to die in order for us to benefit from his ministry. But there's also, and and this is probably the, the, the main point, when people made a will in the Old Testament, made a covenant, they, they spoke about cutting a covenant. And there was an animal that was split down the middle. And the two covenant parties uh, would walk between the two halves of the animals. And the ritual was saying, may it be to me as it is to this animal, should I break the terms of the covenant. So they were taking on themselves a covenant curse. They were binding themselves in this very visible way to fulfilling the promise of the covenant. And you remember when Abram has this night vision of a covenant uh, and there are birds which are, 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 are cut in two and there's a burning a, a brazier of fire comes between the sides of the sacrifice. It's signifying that God is taking on himself the maledictory oath, the, the, the cursed, the curse of the covenant. When did that happen? Happened on the cross of Calvary. God himself uh, became a curse for us, took on himself the terms, the, 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 the consequences of a bre- breach of the covenant. We broke the covenant. God
God takes on responsibility for that. A death had to take place if the covenant was to remain intact. Jesus' death was necessary to bring in the blessings of the covenant for us because we had broken it. A death had to take place. Jesus offers himself on the cross. Uh, His death actually did something. And in verses 25 to 28, uh, what's emphasised is the, the once and for all nature of this sacrifice. Jesus' death accomplished something. It, it, uh, it settled the account. It satisfied the covenant. It paid our debt. It did what the old administration was patently not doing. And the repetition of sacrifices made that very clear. Our sin had created a debt that we could not pay. Couldn't pay by our dead works. Couldn't pay by the blood of animals. But the Son of God, the precious Son of God, Jesus, the Prince of Glory, the Lamb of God, without blemish, without stain, came as that covenant price. Bore the curse, died and shed his blood. And the benefits of his death span history. The cross stretches a shadow back to all of the men and women of faith in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant who were looking for something better and all the way forward to all the millions who have trusted in Jesus' blood since he died. Jesus was sacrificed once for sin. Our guilty conscience needs no other sacrifice for sin. Jesus is sufficient. His work is done. Needs no repetition. When he returns again, it will not be to offer up another sacrifice for sin. He will come as judge of all the earth and the welcomer of all who await his salvation. And therefore, as, as the chapter comes to, to an end and stresses this once and for all and sufficient work of Jesus, it comes with an implicit challenge, doesn't it? One life and then death. One day of judgment. One sacrifice for sin. Friends, one opportunity. This life is not a dress rehearsal for something that follows. This is the real thing. So the question it leaves us with, are you ready for his appearing? Has Jesus' blood been effectual for you as it cleansed your sin? May God bless to us the preaching of his precious word. Amen.